Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 33 and shout for joy. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and that it not only teaches us, Lord, about the forgiveness of sins from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between because of Christ, but Lord, it teaches us about how to have true joy because of Christ and how to worship you in a manner that is consistent both with your character and with your word. And so we pray now as we open your word that we would we would discover the meaning and the and the true joy and delight it is in knowing you as you have revealed yourself. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time that you've given to us to now open your word and pray, Lord, and thank you that Isaiah 55, 11 says that your word will not return without void. And thank you for Hebrews 4, 12, which tells us that it will pierce our hearts. So we thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given to us to open your word. And thank you, Lord, that you will use it by your spirit and for your glory, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 33 says this, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you, o you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath, by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by his great might, it cannot rescue Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and he is our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. 
Psalm 33 aims to take the truth that we heard about last week, about the blessing of the forgiveness of sins because of Christ, and to take it into uh, put it into practice, put it into our lives. And since the psalmist here is speaking to the righteous and the upright, even godly Christians need this message. So my aim is to help us to direct our hearts, not to the world, but to God, so that we might worship and praise God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our soul. Psalm 33 is closely connected to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 describes the blessing and the joy of those whom God has forgiven. And David ends that psalm with command in Psalm 32, 11, which says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And the first verse of Psalm 33 repeats this command with almost the same words. Psalm 33, verse 1, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you his righteous. Praise befits the upright. It's as if Psalm 33 was written as an extension of Psalm 32. And the words they share are like stitches that join these psalms together at the seam. Because Psalm 33 does not have a heading, these two are joined together as one psalm in ten Hebrew manuscripts. Psalm 32 describes the blessing of forgiveness. Psalm 33 follows as a song of joy. And so in many ways, Psalm 33 is a song of the forgiven, a praise to God. For those who sin, God does not count against them. And this is a song for you today, dear Christian. You see, we who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have had our sins forgiven. We who were once under the white-hot fury of God the Father are now forgiven because of Christ. And not only forgiven, we are given a new standing, a new hope, a new message. And to be disciples, not of the world, but of Christ. This is a great joy. This is good news. And so the psalmist wants to help us by calling us to worship. He gives us a cause for our worship. And he gives us confidence from worship. So first, he's going to call us to worship. In verses 1 through 3 are an energetic call to worship the Lord. And the psalmist here describes the loud, the joyful worship with musicians, with singers, with worshipers, praising God together. There are times to be still before the Lord, but this is not one of those times. If you have been forgiven of your sin because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you want to make Noise to the Lord. And so the call to worship begins in verse 1 of Psalm 33, which says, Shout for the Lord, joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. A better translation for shout for joy is yell. It can mean yelling for joy, but can it also mean a yell of anguish or despair. Here it is obviously an excited shout because we're happy. Now imagine you're a high school senior, you're waiting for your college acceptance letter, and that day comes when you get that offer letter, and it says, 
And the first line, we are pleased to offer you a place in the freshman class. And you don't get any further in that letter. You drop the letter. And you're excited. It's like an athlete, a baseball player who hits a home run, or a golfer who gets a hole-in-one. Or on and on we could go. You get a promotion. At your, you're excited. This is the sort of excited, undignified shout that we see in verse 1. And what could cause this kind of joy, this kind of excitement? And the psalmist commands us to shout for joy, not in a, the, the circumstances of our life, but to shout for joy in the Lord. God himself here is the cause of the commotion. It's about him. When you have felt like the weight of your sin is against you, like David did in Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, and then felt God's forgiveness, your heart will sing, sing of the joy of being forgiven because of Christ. Who else can praise God like this? Well, the unbelieving world can't. The angels can't because they have not sinned and been forgiven. The seraphim around the throne cannot praise God like we can because they have not experienced the goodness of God like we have. And so it is a beautiful thing when God's people get carried away and shout their praise to God. And we need to be clear here. There's a difference between godly emotions in our worship and emotionalism. There are plenty of religious showmen. They want to stir up your affections and they have no other goal than to manipulate you and control you. We are seeing, but the psalmist here is not about manipulation. He's not about emotionalism. The, this kind of emotionalism that just stirs people up, that's false worship. Just get them excited. Get them, get them fired up in their emotions and teach them that it's all about a feeling. Unfortunately, this is what we're seeing in the church today so much. During the, during the time of Jonathan Edwards, Edwards wanted to raise, he, he preached in such a way as he wanted to raise the people's affections to God to their highest level with, he would say, the truth of God's word. He wanted them to come into an experiential encounter with God because of the word of God. But today the opposite of ha is happening. What people today are doing and what you see on TV and other, other things like that is you see preachers raising the affections of the people to the highest levels, not with the Bible. That's is emotionalism. That is false worship. That is manipulation. Psalm 33 is talking about an honest emotional reaction to an experience of the greatness and the glory of God. I'm from, born and raised in Seattle. I live here in Southern Oregon. If you drive southeast from Seattle on a clear day, you will see Mount Rainier in the distance. And as you get closer, you might come to an overlook where you can pull the car over and you can get out and take it all in. Mount Rainier is a massive volcano that towers 14,400 feet above sea level. 
And when you stand at the foot of this huge mountain, you might say, wow, will you look at that? And no one is ever going to tell you that that is. No, no one has to tell you to say this. It's just an emotional reaction. In our worship, we should present the majesty and the glory of God so clearly and so compellingly that men and women's affections are raised to the highest possible level with the glory of God revealed in the word of God. In verses 2 and 3, the psalmist calls for loud, joyful music that is proper and fitting for upright, for godly people. Psalm 33, 2-3 says, Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Worship should be accompanied with instruments. This is the first time that musical instruments are mentioned in the Psalms. Israel worshiped God with a variety of instruments that include strings, winds, and percussions. Psalm 150 tells us this. And here the psalmist commands us to use stringed instruments to the glory of God. Now, some Christians today believe that it's wrong to use instruments in the church. And yet the New Testament tells us to speak to one another in Ephesians 5.19 in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And if we sing the psalms, we can hardly avoid the many references to musical instruments. It'd be strange if Paul wanted us to speak the psalms to one another, but not do what they say. Psalm 33 is one of the many psalms that endorse musical instruments for Christian worship that we'll look at. But worship should also be fresh. It should be grounded in the word of God. And this is the idea behind the command, sing to him a new song in verse 3. Believers in every generation experience God's grace for themselves and their musicians should write songs with creative and not creative license to take people away from God, but to raise their affections with the truth of God's word. Those of us in the English-speaking world have inherited a wonderful treasury of great songs and hymns from earlier generations. But if God is at work today, the music we have is already not enough. We need new songs too. In the 16th century, Martin Luther wrote new songs as God worked during the Protestant Reformation. In the 18th century, Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley wrote new songs that fueled worship during the First Great Awakening. In the, 16th, in the 19th century, the blind hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote new songs for her generation. God is giving us new songs in the 21st century, too. Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty wrote In Christ Alone in 2001, and on and on and on. When a new generation experienced God's grace revealed in the Word of God, they write new songs to praise the Lord. And it needs to be said today, again, because so much of contemporary worship is all about just raising people's affections to the highest level. It's emotionalism. But our worship songs must be rooted in the word of God. They must be rooted in the word of God. Worship should also be led with musical excellence. The psalmist calls on musicians to play skillfully in verse 3. We should be thankful for the amount of time our musicians put in to practice, to rehearse, 
and to lead us well in worship. A good goal for Sunday morning is undistracting excellence. The purpose of playing skillfully is not for a musician to show off how good they are. The reason for skillful playing is to honor God, to help lead the people of God to God, to honor him, to worship him. And yet worship should also be enthusiastic. Verse 3, loud shouts can sometimes mean a war cry or a cry of alarm. When you use for praising God, it shows the energy, the emotion, the, the enthusiasm that is proper and fitting when we are cheering for such a great king. John Piper spoke about this in a letter to his congregation some years ago. Two people recently asked me, he said, what I would feel like if they said amen when something moved them. Now, the only reason anyone would ask that is if they're getting the wrong signals. The answer is we would feel great. It's the same thing with lifting your hands in praise. When it is in your heart, do it. Anything that helps express your heart for God does not hinder and does not hinder other people is okay with us. We want life in the sanctuary on Sunday. Of course, everybody's different. Some people don't want to lift their hands. For some people, a deep, hearty hmm means their heart is moved. We need to allow others to respond to the truth of God's word and the beauty of Jesus Christ as God has wired them. Ultimately, God sees our hearts and we cannot fake him out. <coughs> Next, let's consider the cause for our worship. And after this call to worship, the psalmist gives us the cause for our worship. In verses 4 through 19 of Psalm 33, the psalmist fans the coals of our hearts with three main reasons for praising the Lord. He calls us to worship because of the word of God, because of the will of God, and because of the watchfulness of God. And it's hard to get excited about nothing. The joy and energy of verses 1 through 3 are rooted in the, in the truth and theology of verses 4 through 19. And what we're going to see here in this these verses is biblical worship grows out of biblical doctrine. Biblical worship grows out of biblical doctrine. Biblical worship, it's not focused first and foremost on my emotions and raising my affections for no point. Biblical worship is, is, is to have a focus. It has a goal. It has a source, and that source is the Word of God. And the first source, the, the first cause for worship that we'll see here is the character of God we see throughout His Word. Psalm 33, 4-7 says, For the Word of God, the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the Word of the Lord... The heavens were made, and the, and the breath of his mouth all lost their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. See, God's word cannot be separated from God himself. His spirit is as close to his word as breath is to speech. And that means that the, God's word is upright, verse 4, because God himself is upright. And the word upright, it means straight, it means level. Nothing God says is crooked or deceptive. It is always and everywhere true. God's word cannot be separated from God himself. God works in this world through his word as he did in the days of his creation. And so his works are an extension of his word. 
and they reveal the character of God. And so God's character is reflected in everything that he says and everything that he does. And since he spoke the world into existence, his glory is seen in the work of creation. The earth overflows with the steadfast love of the world, of the steadfast love of God, excuse me. And the more we study the world around us, the more clearly we see the character of God displayed. And so the order in the universe displays the order of the character of God. The beauty in the world displays the goodness of the heart of God. He could have made the world an ugly place in which to live, but he did not. He made it a beautiful place to live for us to enjoy. And he designed food for us to enjoy. Jared Manley Hopkins said it so well. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like a shining that shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. And so why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. All is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There, lie, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the broken brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bents will bruise with warm breast and with all bright wings. Now, the earth could have been filled with endless terrors, but instead God filled it generously with grace. Men and women live in the sea of God's goodness like a fish lives in the water, and yet many don't see it. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, should worship the Lord. Psalm 33, 8-9 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The second reason for our worship is the will of God. Psalm 33, 10 through 11 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. This could be referring to an attack on the nation of Israel. But in the content of the Psalms, it seems natural to think of the counsel of the nations in terms of Psalm 2. The nations have set themselves against God and against Christ the King. The words are not exactly the same in the Hebrew, but the idea is the same. Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so when Psalm 33, 10 says he brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, this ultimately means that God blocks the world's opposition to Jesus Christ. All their plotting is pointless. God pops their plans like a balloon. And instead, God's will and God's purposes will stand forever. His plan for the universe is to set Christ on the throne of the universe and to bring all things under and in subjection to Jesus Christ. That is the will of God. God's will is wonderful news because for God's people, it means salvation. God's plan is to honor Christ. And so we're blessed because we are in union with Christ. 
And this is what he says in Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And the psalmist is thinking especially of Israel here. In the fullness of time, though, the mystery of God's plan would be revealed that God included Gentiles as natural-born citizens with his people. The apostle Peter describes Gentile Christians as God's people, his nation, in 1 Peter 2.9, which says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God has chosen believers to be his heritage. And someday ethnic Israel will turn to Jesus Christ and this blessing will be fulfilled in them too. And the third reason for our worship is the watchfulness of God. Psalm 33, 13 through 15 says, The Lord looks down from the heaven, heaven and he, he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. And observes all their deeds. God's eye is on everyone, male and female, young and old, great and small, and he considers everything he do everything we do. And the word observes, it has the sense of perceiving or understanding. God does not merely see what we do, he understands what we're doing. This complete knowledge is terrifying to those who do not know God. But God's complete knowledge is an immense comfort to his people. You see, if God knows everything, he can protect us from everything and provide for us in every situation. Psalm 33, 16 through 19 says this, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Do you fear the Lord? Do you know that God sees you? He understands all the ways in which you're aiming to honor him and put him first. No one else may understand what you're doing today, but the Lord knows. He sees your heart. And since he knows all things, he can protect you. He can provide for you. God's complete knowledge of you means God's complete care. And the joyful worship of verses 1 through 3 is fueled by the powerful truths that we've considered in verses 4 through 19. The psalmist calls us to worship God for his reliable word, his enduring will, and his watchful protection. And now finally, we're going to consider confidence from worship. And here the psalmist describes the faith that comes from heartfelt worship. The psalm begins with a shout. It ends with quiet Christian confidence. There's a place for both. You see, the point of worshiping God with energy and joy is not just to feel good or to have an amazing experience to, quote-unquote, get on fire for God. The end result of true worship is stronger faith in God. If you worship the Lord in spirit and in truth on the Lord's day, you are strengthening your heart to trust God in the coming week. This is what we all should want for ourselves and in our local churches. We want to strengthen our faith in God together as we worship him together on the Lord's day. Psalm 33, 20-22 says this, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. 
these verses are plural throughout because the psalmist still has all God's people in mind. Relationships are vital for our spiritual health and growth. We praise the Lord together because his word is reliable. It's trustworthy. It's sufficient. His will for us in Christ is unshakable. His watchful care is unwavering. And we wait together. We know that he is our help and our shield. And so we wait together as as a Sunday school class, asking God to answer our prayers. We wait for the Lord with others in small groups. Waiting is group work. We stand together and we strengthen each other in our walk with God. And now the psalmist comes full circle. You see, when we trust God, he gives us a quiet gladness that is like a smoldering coal ready to burst into flame with praise. We should praise God with joy and energy as we hope in him. The psalmist has a goal in mind, and that is that we will trust him. As we considered last week, we, we can trust the Lord because he is unchanging. He's unchanging. We change. The times and the seasons of our life change like the shifting sand. But the Lord, his word is trustworthy. His character is steady. Titus 1 2 says that, that God will never lie. And so we, we don't just worship this, this imaginary figure, this pie in the sky idea. We worship the Lord who Genesis 1 tells us very clearly God spoke and all things came into existence. We worship the God who has sent forth Christ the Son to pay for our penalty in our place and for our sin and to be buried and to rise again. You see, there is no forgiveness of sins apart from Christ. The, apart from the forgiveness of sins, there is no reason to shout for joy. Apart from the forgiveness of sin, there's, there's no just looking out and, and giving thanks to the Lord for the creation of which he has made. You see, it's because God is good that we give thanks for the, for the creation that he made because we have come to know Christ. And so the question is, have you come to know the forgiveness of sins that is only available to you in and through Christ? If you want to have real joy, if you want to have real meaning, if you want to have real purpose in your life, and then not just the best life now variety that is so popular it's, it's so inundated and drenched contemporary Christian literature and media. If you want to worship the Lord as, as he is prescribed, as he is honored, then you must know him as he's revealed in the word of God. Not just as one of many options that you can choose to participate in on Sunday like you could just click through channels and you sometimes somehow have a God of your own making. That's what that TV preacher wants you to do. He wants you to have a God of your own making, but that God is an idol. God has revealed himself in the word of the Lord. There is a way to know God. To know him as he's specifically revealed himself. There, there's a way to know the character and the attributes of God. It's in the word of God. 
It's in the 66 books that constitute the scriptures. Today, we, we don't need another word. We don't need another prophet. We don't need another guru. We don't need another shepherd. What we need is the word of God. What we need is to be in local churches that preach the word of God. There's a famine in the land because and there, there is a worship crisis in our day because people refuse to honor God. They refuse to bow before the honor and the glory of God. Sadly, that's happening in the church today because we have songs that dishonor God. They sound good. They tickle our ears. They make us feel good. But we must be especially Bereans on this point. Acts 17.11 tells us very clearly that the Bereans were commended for searching the scriptures to see if these things were so because we have teachers out there that are telling us that they want to sneak bad theology in through our music. And they do. Because they, what they want to do is they want to teach us through music. That's why we must do as Proverbs says in Proverbs 4.23, and we must guard our hearts with all due diligence. Because what God has done is he's given us a new heart with new desires, a new affection for his glory in Jesus and John 7 says, the living water of God by the spirit of God, because we're in union with Christ, will pour forth from us as living water. And we're talking about the one who is God. God is sufficient in and of himself. It is God who brings us from death to life. He brings things that were once dead and makes him alive. And this is what God has done. If you're a Christian, he has brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He has brought you from being an enemy of God, an opponent of God, under the wrath of God. And he has made you a friend of God, a servant of God, and a servant of the grace of God. What this should do is it should lift our hearts, it should lift our minds not to just some emotional experience. The danger in even preaching a text like this is raising the emotions, uh, your emotions to such a level in a way that could be manipulative and emotional abuse. But the text is trying to do this. The problem is, is we live in a day where everybody is all about their feelings. It's all, faith is a feeling. We equate feelings and our emotions at the same level. And what the scripture does is the scripture teaches us rather how to see our emotions, how to understand our emotions. Scripture is authoritative, in other words, over our emotions. But for too many people, Scripture and our feelings are at the same level. This is because we live in a time in which people have been inundated with the idea that it's all about me. It's about my help. It's about self. And what we have to understand is texts like this, chapters like this in the psalm remind us that God is sufficient in and of himself. He calls us to worship him. He calls us 
to himself. The source of our worship is not ourself. The source of our help is not ourself. The source of our confidence is not ourselves. The, the source, the hope, and our confidence belong in God. And this is why our worship should be directed to God. It should be regulated by God. And we should come under the word of God. Because the word of God is the only way to know God. It's the only way that we can know and have joy. Because from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, we learn of the Savior and Lord and King in Jesus. The one who has come, the one who has bore the penalty for us in our place and for our sin, who was buried and rose again. We learn of the one who is even now interceding for us, the one who is our mediator, the one who is our intercessor. We learn of the one who is to come. In fact, Paul, if we look at Romans 11, just think with me about this for a second. Romans 1 through 3 talks about the sin, our sinfulness and how apart from God, we deserve the just white hot fury of God. In Romans 4 through 5, we discover the forgiveness that God offers because of Christ. In chapters 6 through 11, we discover how God has given us a new standing in him and we are united to him by faith. And so much more, chapter 9 through 11 tells us of the, of the glory of, of, of God and so much more. And there at the very end of this section of, of Romans, before he gets into practical matters, he pauses in verses 33 through 36 to worship the God and to praise him for who he is. That is that captures perfectly the heart of this psalmist. He wants us to praise God for who he is, for who the Lord is, for all that he does, not just all the things that he gives us. Are you worshiping the Lord because of what he gives or because of who he is? You see, the difference is if you worship God for who he is, you know who God is. You know what he's like. He is holy. He is majestic. And when people meet God, like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, they fell down and they worshiped God. They were undone. And they realized that they were a man of unclean lips. And the more we get to know God, the more we get to know his character, the more we get to know his attributes, the more that we understand that we are that man like Isaiah. In fact, the more that you grow in the grace of God, the more you're going to see your remaining, your dwelling sin. And you're going to cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, as Paul does in Romans 7. And you're going to want to cling even closer in vital union with Christ and abandon worldliness and grow closer in intimacy with the God who has revealed himself in Scripture and all of this is a cause not to be morbidly introspective, but to shout for joy. Because our king has come. He has come in the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. He was born in a manger. He was virgin born. 
He came under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that we justly deserve. And he was buried and he rose. He's our high priest. He's our intercessor. That means in the midst of the circumstances of your life, in the midst of the challenges of your life, whatever they are, God sees, God knows, and his complete knowledge of everything about you and all of your situation means also, and it guarantees his complete and utter care. By the way, that's what we see in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. See, Christ is sinless. And because Christ is sinless, he can sympathize with us because the text tells us he was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. And this is why he can also summon us as our high priest before himself, before the throne of grace. What this should do for our hearts is it should reorient our hearts. We are living in a time of, it's all about me. It's all about my pleasure. It's all about my enjoyment of life. Self is at the center. And what a text like this does is it reorients our perspective. It changes the paradigm. It is a game changer entirely. Because it says that our lives are to be Godward directed. And if they are Godward directed, then our worship should be Godward directed. Especially as Christians. It's not about us. It's not about my emotions. God tells us how we're to respond to life because his word is inspired. It, it's inerrant. It's sufficient. It's, it, it, it teaches us and instructs us. It gives us a way to understand our emotions in light of who he is. And our response to that is obedience. Faith in our Feelings are not at the same level. Rather, the word of God is to teach us how to deal with our anger, how to deal with our discouragement, how to deal with our anxiety, how to deal with our discouragement, and on and on. And the reason that Jonathan Edwards wanted to raise people's affections to the highest level with the truth of God is we are too satisfied by the world we are too captivated by the world we are too easily satisfied by the world and in many cases maybe you have succumbed to the world and again what a text like this does for us is it reminds us as we talked last week about the blessing of forgiveness but also the result that follows from that our only proper response to the forgiveness that we have received is to respond in praise with our whole life because all of our lives are before the face of God. So I ask you today, is that the response? Is that the posture of your heart? And if not, I, I invite you to do what Leviticus, or not Leviticus, Lamentations 3.40 says, let us examine our ways and return to the Lord. Do as 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the truth of Psalm 32, the blessing of forgiveness. And yet today we're also reminded that that leads to something. It leads to a response to the forgiveness that we have received, to living a life in the complete knowledge and under the complete care of your sufficient care for us because of Christ. And so, Lord, we, we are so thankful for the, your complete and utter knowledge that nothing is outside of your, the knowledge of who you are as you have revealed yourself in your word. And we thank you that nothing is outside of your care, that you are from beginning to end, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the Prince of Peace, the Lord, our righteousness. And so, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, not only to just know that you are God. Help us to trust, Lord, that you are good, that you are merciful, that you are faithful, that you're just, that you have clearly revealed yourself. And may the response of our heart as your people be one of joy, one of praise, looking to, as Hebrews 12 says, the author and the finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. Your word is enough. Your word is binding on our lives. May the response and the posture of our hearts be one of fearing the Lord because of Christ, abandoning worldliness, fleeing to the righteousness that is only found in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.